Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 115. Okay, take out your phone and open your messaging app. If you're driving, don't do that. But if you're not, this will be really weird and fun. So um, I'm going to do it. Here we go. Okay, I have mine. I'm going to do this thing where I just want to send a message to no one in particular. I just want to play around with the predictive text. Now, if you are doing the same thing, let's both type this in. The nurse said. Okay, now what do you see? <laughs> On my phone, I have three options, she, that, and it. And I'm going to pick she, so if you pick she, let's see if it matches what I do. I get, <laughs> the nurse said she wanted her number, but she decided she was leaving. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty marvelous, actually. Uh, it's out of nothing. This machine just thought of this sentence all by itself. All I did was prompt it a little bit, and with just a little nudge, I got, the nurse said she wanted her number, but she had decided she was leaving. Okay, now, I want you to think about this. Why did it not offer me the choice of making the nurse a he? So let's try another. Let's start with doctor. Okay, I get he, that, and it. And the sentence is, the doctor said he was going out and then he gave me some stuff. <laughs> now, that's a great sentence. But the machine this time was pretty sure I was talking about a man. The doctor said he was going out and then he gave me some stuff. Okay, let's try pilot. The pilot said... And I get he again. I get he, thee, and that. Not she. And the sentence I get is, the pilot said he would not get back in time for his <laughs> first date in his life. <laughs> I like that so much. The pilot said he would not get back in time for the first date in his life. This can really seem like magic, and it can seem rather prejudiced also, as if we've built some sexist machine mind that wants to maintain old-fashioned gender norms. But there's not actually an artificial intelligence at work here. It's an algorithm. It's a very simple set of rules and processes drawing from a database. And sure, yeah, predictive text could have grown out of learning from all of its users over time, but that is not really how we got this tool. It was bootstrapped, and that bootstrapping was accomplished in part by using something called Word2Vec. It's a corpus of words. It's basically a bag of words uh, taken from the, the documents of the past 50 years. That is data science expert Alistair Kroll. So my name is Alistair Kroll. And I probably have ADHD as a career. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to run a bunch of very interesting conferences for O'Reilly Media uh, on things like startups and uh, data science. And I teach a course at Harvard Business School 
uh, on data science and critical thinking. And I spend the rest of my time trying to trying to figure out what happens when the rubber of technology meets the road of humanity. Alistair explained to me that Word to Vec is a body of three million words taken from the last 50 years of journalism. And with it, a machine can, based on what usually follows a certain set of words, make a reasonable prediction of what's going to come next. So if you type the United States of, it will predict America. If you type the Eiffel... It will predict tower. So, for example, if I said to you, um, happy, the next word might be birthday. If I said happy birthday to, you're much more likely to think that the next word is happy birthday to you. You can see this in terms of anything from translation to natural language parsing to suggesting what word to type next on your computer keyboard. But if you use the phrase, the nurse said, it will predict the best gender pronoun to follow that is she. And that's because the machine is predicting how things are supposed to go based on how they used to go together in the past. In other words, it's prejudiced. These algorithms are falling prey to something we could call machine bias. So bias in and of itself is just a fact. That is artificial intelligence expert Damien Williams. My name is uh, Damian Williams. Uh, I am a researcher, writer, student, and instructor on the issues of uh, the, how we think about our technology, how our technology intersects with us, how it affects our daily lives and changes who we are. Damian says that clearly our digital creations are exhibiting bias, but bias is the way all thinking systems make sense of the world. They predict the future based on the past. We exist as kind of limited, constricted things with a viewpoint. And as a machine learns a viewpoint, uh, those biases will creep in from the points of view from which it learns. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that when that starts to play out into these kinds of prejudicial viewpoints, when we start to see uh, sexism and racism creep in, homophobia, ableism, all of these factors start to creep in, that's when bias becomes a problem. Up until that point, it's the way that we navigate the world. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, we need to distinguish between harmful prejudice and bias and the kinds of prejudice and bias that we're consciously asking a machine learning algorithm to develop. That is philosopher Shannon Valor. My name is Shannon Valor. I'm a professor of philosophy at Santa Clara University, Jesuit University in Silicon Valley. I've been working on philosophy of science and technology, but specifically the uh, ethics of emerging technologies for the last 10 years or so. Um, and in particular, my focus has been the ethics of robotics and artificial intelligence. Alistair Kroll, Damien Williams, and Shannon Valor, they're all members of a growing community of scientists, philosophers, and people working in Silicon Valley and other places who are worried about the algorithms we're creating to make sense of the world and to run the world. We're sort of taking the first steps toward artificial intelligence and machine minds, and so far, many of those first steps have been missteps. Some of our worst tendencies are creeping into our infant thinking systems. And so each of our guests in this episode is pushing for the people who make these things to really think about something they're calling data ethics. I define it as doing data science and data practice ethically. And of course, that opens the next question. Well, what do you mean by ethically? Um, well, that means in ways that are just 
and that appropriately consider the well-being of those affected by our actions, emissions, and choices. Mindfulness about the ways in which our data and our engagement with technology uh, can have unintended consequences and trying to make sure that as we move forward, we don't simply move fast and break things, but also try to think very carefully about what might break and for whom. So I think data ethics uh, has been around for a long time, and it started in the marketing domain with things like direct marketing, where uh, was it okay to send someone a postcard? And was it enough for that citizen to put a sign on their mailbox saying no junk mail? Uh, Because the data back then was trying to predict who you were better than average. Uh, So really a lot of the data ethics stuff came about um, because of uh, target marketing. As Alistair explains, even before targeted marketing, people who handled census data had to consider data ethics when it came to tithings and taxes and conscription and so on. Today, with the power and scale and scope of the Internet, vast repositories of data and these kind of sort of thinking machines, data ethics has entered new territory. And one of the first problems that we need to address is how to teach these machines when it is and is not okay to be prejudiced. When is it okay to predict the future based on the past? When is it okay to be biased? If you didn't have bias, you couldn't make decisions. You couldn't try to move through your day. So I show you a whole bunch of pictures of cats and a bunch of pictures of not cats. And then I want you to go look at pictures and make a judgment about whether you think they're cats or not in the future. So, for example, I want a machine learning algorithm to learn what tumors look like in the past. And I want it to become biased towards selecting those kinds of tumors in the future. Recognition is prejudice. When I... When I look at the world and I see a bunch of uh, parallel dots at six feet off the ground, my brain is very good at telling whether those are eyeballs on a face or not because it's been trained by lots and lots of other examples of not faces and faces. But I don't want a machine learning algorithm to learn what successful engineers and doctors looked like in the past and then become biased towards selecting those kinds of people when sorting and ranking resumes. The way that machine learning is different from just simple classification of software is that the algorithm that gets it right the most times goes on to fight in the next round, so to speak. And so um, machine learning is basically training up something that is the best prejudiced uh, cat recognizer out there. A machine learning algorithm can't tell the difference between morally good, neutral, or unjust forms of bias. And so that's something that humans have to be much more careful about. Because what engineers and doctors looked like in the past was largely a product of arbitrary social exclusion, exclusion that wasn't based on merit or talent, but on racism and sexism and other forms of harmful prejudice. But we shouldn't wait for someone to find these kinds of bias in our algorithms. Uh, Designers and users should be assuming from the start that some of the training data that we use will incorporate biases of the kind that we don't want, the kind that we do and should want to exclude. And then we have to figure out how we accomplish that from a technical standpoint. So um, what we've got here is a series of vectors that need to sort of be curated after the fact to say, yes, the word pilot is close to the word study. Yes, the word pilot is close to airplane. No, the word pilot is not close to man or woman. There are other words like um, boy and man and boyhood uh, and fraternity, for example, that are all masculine and have female counterparts. And there's actually an effort um, by folks at MIT to go through and curate word to vec to de-prejudice it. But as you can imagine, 
even deprejudicing things is a judgment call. When our machines are wrong to assume that a doctor is a man, well, they're not wrong statistically because the data we fed them told them that it was statistically more likely. But if you're trying to change that, if you're trying to progress away from that, away from the past, well, this sort of bias and prejudice is a real problem. It means that our machines are morally wrong. They're socially wrong. And that kind of wrongness is currently difficult to program out of the algorithms that we've created. So after the break, you're going to hear what our guests think about that. And they think it is a solvable problem. You'll hear why. Also, after the break, we will talk about what Alistair just mentioned. Since we are divided politically and morally on what the future should look like, well, who gets to pick that future? Who gets to teach our machines right and wrong? All that and some shocking examples of algorithms that have gone awry after this commercial break. Let's talk about The Great Courses Plus. You know I love The Great Courses Plus. It's a great company, and I really enjoy their product. And I'm going to skip right to the end here. You can go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart and get an entire month free. Now, listen, that's crazy because they have 8,500 lectures on everything from psychology, history, language to wine, how to appreciate wine, how to play chess, how to be a better photographer. Look, One of my favorite things in the world to do is just spend my free time cruising through the Great Courses Plus catalog and finding things that I didn't know that I didn't know that I want to know about. And it's so great to have unlimited access to learn from all their amazing professors and experts about anything that interests me. Now, I highly recommend Biology and Human Behavior, The Neurological Origins of Individuality. Uh, This one has... Robert Sapolsky as your professor. He's a well-known and interesting scientist, and this course is enormous. The first half is biology. The second half takes you through how that connects you to behavior. Just type it into Google right now. Biology and Human Behavior, the Neurological Origins of Individuality. You can see all the courses for yourself. There are 24 30-minute long lectures. It starts out with just the basic cells of the nervous system, and by the end, we're talking about things like aggression and experience, evolution, cooperation. This is an amazing course. This is one of those things I think you need to be a better person and you should check it out right now as part of your free month. Remember, we talked about that earlier. You can get a free month of The Great Courses Plus by going to my special URL. And you can do this right now and you can start watching it right now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's the great courses plus.com slash smart. HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step by step recipes and pre measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. With HelloFresh, all the ingredients are delivered right to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging, and it comes pre measured in handy, 
labeled meal kits so you know which ingredients go with which recipe. And HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly, including the Classic Plan, which comes with a wide variety of meat, fish, and seasonal produce, the Veggie Plan, which has vegetarian recipes and plant-based proteins, and the Family Plan, quick and easy meals the whole family will love. And better yet, you can choose a delivery day that works best for your busy schedule. You can even pause your account for weeks at a time. Now, my favorite thing is they get you out of your comfort zone. You will find meals that you never thought you could make, and you can make them using simple recipes outlined on pictured step-by-step instruction cards. I love looking forward to HelloFresh's box every week as the highlight of my week because I know dinner just got that much easier. Now, what did I enjoy making for them? Well, I got this stuff called, I have the recipe card right here. It's called gnocchi. I never knew how to pronounce it until <laughs> until I got this HelloFresh package, but I got maple and brown butter gnocchi. It's, um, it's basically like this butternut squash and sage dish, and it was just great. You make this, make your own pasta sauce. You have to do brown butter and maple syrup and sage. It's delicious. This is something you want in your life. I promise it. It is really good stuff. You get $30 off your first week by going to HelloFresh.com and enter the offer code Y-A-N-S-S-30. You just got 30 bucks. 30 bucks off your first week at Y-A-N-S-S-3-0. HelloFresh.com. Type that in and you will thank me because you just found your favorite meal kit delivery service. HelloFresh. And now we return to our program. My name is David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. In this episode, we are talking about machine bias. We often discuss human cognitive biases on the show, but it seems as though any thinking system can become biased, especially if it bases what it knows on knowledge from our human past. Now, before the break, I told you that our guests in this episode had shared with me some shocking and honestly terrifying examples of machine bias. One of those examples was something I had never heard of and was completely shocked to learn was part of our daily lives and not something still locked away in a dystopian cyberpunk science fiction story. Every day in America, computers are helping decide who does and does not go to jail. They're called algorithmic sentencing tools, and we're starting to see that these simple machine minds, which judges depend on for advice, are racist. One of the biggest tools that gets used is just a uh, uh, bail determination algorithm. Again, that's Damian Williams. And this bail determination algorithm is used to, well, determine bail, whether someone gets bail at all and at what level their bail is set, how expensive it will be. In a recent ProPublica report, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes, they compared two crimes. In one, an 18-year-old girl picked up an unsecured bicycle from the side of the street and tried to ride it to school. It belonged to a six-year-old boy, and when the mother of the child called the police... Brisha Borden was arrested and charged with burglary and theft of an item worth $80. In the other crime, a 41-year-old man named Vernon Prater shoplifted $86 worth of items from a Home Depot 
in the same neighborhood. Now, when both of these people went before the court, a computer made recommendations about bond, bail, and all the rest for each person. And it said that the bicycle thief, who committed a few juvenile misdemeanors, was a high risk for committing future crimes. And the Home Depot shoplifter, who had previously been convicted of an armed robbery, was a low risk for future crime. Now, why? Because the bicycle thief was black. The Home Depot thief was white. And worse still, this computer, it got it wrong. The high-risk criminal never committed another crime. The low-risk one is serving an eight-year sentence for another robbery he committed after the computer told the judge he wasn't concerned. Now, according to ProPublica, these algorithms are in use right now in Arizona, Colorado, Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin, and they'll likely spread. Non-white defendants were recommended bail less often, and when they were recommended bail, they were recommended bail at a higher price point than white defendants. Well, how, how is that being employed? Like, how does that get used to actually get used by human beings in the court system? So in the court system, that recommendation gets folded into um, the decision that gets made by a judge or more likely a, you know, a judge's clerk in the back office when going about determining whether the person in front of them actually will have the ability to post bail. And uh, if that is then if the recommendation is assumed to be uh, clean. That is, a machine made this determination. The math says this is what it should be set at, so we trust the math, we trust the machine, and we just move forward. If it's assumed that you know there's no way bias can work its way into these kinds of things, or it's not even assumed, but it's never even thought about or considered, then people will just trust the determination of the thing, use it to make their recommendations. Um, and at that point, a judge says, well, um, it looks like your likelihood of you know, flight or your likelihood of recidivism is higher. Therefore, we will go about doing uh, this in this way. Even if that person has no history uh, of flight or recidivism, even if they have, you know, a first offense is what they're seeing in front of them. That's the tendency. That's the likelihood uh-huh. for a non-white defendant is for that to be shown as higher. See, I, I guess I had this crazy image in my head of the, you know, the judge is back there just musing like Gandalf, you know, about the what shall I do? But I, di- I didn't know that he had like it's a- like everybody's image of how the how the system works. Right. But that's not it anymore. There's you know, there's there's a there's a computer system. But there is something more frightening than a racist, biased artificial intelligence. It's that these algorithms don't just incorrectly predict the future. When we take their advice, when we are guided by their output, we give them the power to create the future they have predicted. When they look at the world they've manipulated, they make predictions based on that new data. And then we begin spiraling into a machine-created world built on machine bias and prejudice feedback loops. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a huge worry, um, and it's in part uh, worrisome because so few people do know um, what's happening already. Again, that's Shannon Valor. So a lot of the discussion around AI uh, talks about what's coming in the future, and what's scary about that is that people aren't paying attention to what's already happening, um, and ways in which predictive algorithms, which in many cases, really don't rise to the level that we would necessarily want to call it, 
artificial intelligence, right? There are a lot of much simpler, stupider algorithms that are used to predict. And those are already being used, as you mentioned, in the judicial system. Uh, they're being used um, in public agencies, often in ways that do tremendous damage. There's an expression among data sciences, um, algorithms that shit where they eat. That's Alistair Kroll. Uh, and that uh, refer a good example of that is predictive policing. There's a lot of criticism of predictive policing, some of it substantiated, that says that when you predict where a crime will happen, the cops go there. Um, all arrests, by definition, happen where there are cops. Therefore, the arrests go up in that area, which reinforces the algorithm, which in turn leads to a higher crime rate in the area, which lowers the property values, which leads to all the rich people leaving, which leads to lower taxes in the area for poorer coverage, downward spiral. So whenever you get an algorithm that shits where it eats, um, in other words, where the, the output is tied to the input in an unexpected and sometimes non-obvious way, uh, that's a real problem. Exactly. And from that point forward, if those recommendations are followed and they're not questioned and they're not corrected against by someone who has actual you know, input into the system, who has the ability to adjust the, the settings in the system, if it's not corrected against, then yes, that is exactly what will happen. That recommendation will be taken and it will be taken as new input by that system and it will go, see, I was right. And since I was right, I can go ahead and make these kinds of determinations with greater uh, credibility and, you know, more certainty in the future. Um, there are some uh, well-known uh, cases in Michigan and in Idaho where uh, there were some algorithmic decision support systems used in unemployment and disability benefits offices uh, that were uh, operating in um, wildly arbitrary and unjustified ways uh, that hurt a lot of a lot of people and the state agencies basically weren't paying attention uh, to to the algorithms they were they were trusting the algorithms to do what they thought they were supposed to do. Uh, Boston has an app called Street Bump that was designed to measure where uh, potholes were. So Street Bump was a mobile app that you'd put on the passenger seat next to you. You'd leave it on and it would measure using the accelerometers on the phone where you were going to hit a bump and it would send that information back so the city of Boston could fix uh, all the puddles, which sounds great on the surface. I mean, there's no data bias in there. It's collecting actual facts, but it's actually a case of sampling bias because the kind of people who drive themselves to work with a spare passenger seat and an unlimited data plan on a modern phone are probably different from the kind of people who are busy on their phone while they're taking the bus to and from work. And so what it did was show the city where all the potholes were near rich neighborhoods. And since that time, they've had to correct that by attaching it to garbage trucks and buses and so on, and it's given them good data. So I don't think it's, it, I think this issue of, of data ethics is not unique to machine learning, but I think machine learning complicates it because the software gets to write the next version of itself. And so things can spiral out of control much more quickly than a simple algorithm. So we, one of the things we have to think about is um, thinking of AI and predictive algorithms as a problem that's not uh, something we need to prepare for, but a problem that's already on our hands and that we have to start uh, fixing. So in terms of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, I think that's a really interesting point. And I haven't seen a lot of conversation about that element, um, about the way in which uh, our, uh, our biased algorithms are actually reinforcing harmful social patterns. So I think the, you know, the example of uh, something like uh, a program that's used to decide whether 
uh, someone is at high risk for reoffending, right? And if that program overestimates the risk of uh, someone who's been convicted of a crime reoffending, and then sends them to jail for a longer period of time as a result, or uh, denies them bail or parole as a result, or assigns them to uh, a maximum security prison instead of a, um, a lower category of risk. Well, we know that all those things are correlated with actually increasing uh, the likelihood of reoffending, right? The more time you spend in prison, the more time you spend um, in uh, a, pr a prison with other high-risk offenders, uh, the more likely you yourself are to later reoffend. And so here we have a system that is falsely assigning a risk score that then puts the person into a condition which increases the chances that they will do the thing that the machine predicted wrongly that they were predisposed to do. So it's this very vicious cycle that uh, we're already at risk of uh, perpetuating with machines that are being inappropriately used. And the problem, of course, is that in many of these cases, because the algorithms are proprietary and because the companies that design them won't allow them uh, to be opened up for public inspection, there's mm -hmm. really uh, no way to reliably establish uh, whether these algorithms are truly flawed or whether there's some other problem in the way that they're being implemented. So until we get people behind a movement for greater algorithmic transparency, I'm afraid we're not going to make much progress. I asked Damien, Alistair, and Shannon, what can we do about this? And what is already being done? And the good news is that everyone seemed very optimistic. Despite what some people have said about Silicon Valley, they are on top of this. Yeah, uh, there's been an enormous change just, I would say, in the last three to five years. Uh, Ten years ago, when I was talking about these things, to, to speak uh, to a technical audience, at best, uh, the response would be, you know, some curiosity, um, sometimes overt hostility. Um, often just confusion about why this is relevant for a technical audience. I almost never get that reaction anymore. And in fact, um, I don't actually have to work very hard uh, to get these perspectives out there anymore. I have people coming to me wanting these pr perspectives to be brought into their organizations. Uh, but there are some groups like the AI Now Institute that just launched yesterday, I think, uh, at NYU, uh, that has a, a really great uh, set of uh, principles and, and recommendations for the development AI, of AI that I think will take us a long way. So again, I think there is reason for optimism. I think we're starting to move in the right direction. So what's being done is people being more mindful about the ways in which they go about creating these systems. Um, and there's a big drive towards, uh, as people are calling it, uh, opening the black box. So not either either digging into the systems that exist more carefully and you know talking to the people who've programmed them, talking to the people who've trained the data sets. Um, and saying, okay, no, seriously, what have you done here? Show us how this works. Or 
as we move forward and build new systems, making them transparent systems, making them open systems that people can understand and see so they're not just simply black box so that we can understand that as we move forward, certain things get preferenced, certain things get privileged throughout the system as it makes its determinations that maybe oughtn't to be. Um, and we can then correct for it. We can uh, input new data. We can go ahead and we can say, okay, so why is it selecting these things? Why is it tending towards us? What's it been trained on? And can we show it uh, contravening evidence? Can we show it an expanded understanding of this set, this concept that we are trying to teach it and trying to get it to deploy out in the world in a functional way? And then when we can do that, we can, you know, modulate it. We can say that it's not just, uh, you know, we don't just have the problem where it says woman, you know, man is to doctor as woman is to nurse. You know, we can show women doctors and we can show how these things kind of play out and we can correct against it so it doesn't make those kinds of uh, erroneous determinations moving forward. This is actually one of the areas that I work in um, pretty continuously. Um, so I have a few things to say about that. So uh, the first thing I would say is um, we have to, before we start talking about machine morality, uh, we have to think about human morality, that is the morality of the people designing the machines. And so we can't have designers who are simply resting on the knowledge that they have as computer scientists or engineers. We need technologists who also have an understanding of history, of human social dynamics, of ethics, and of politics, because those are the only forms of knowledge that will help them make a distinction between the kinds of bias uh, or the kinds of outputs that are unethical and that we don't want and the kinds that are useful and that we do want. But right now we're not training technical experts to have that kind of understanding. And we're not training students in the humanities who have that kind of understanding to become interested in technical work. And so that's a big problem and this bridge has to be built before we're going to get a lot further. So, Whenever someone talks about machine ethics, then the first thing I do is say, okay, before we do that, let's talk about let's talk about the ethics of the people behind the machines um, and their understanding of, of of the extent to which ethics intersects with what they do. You know, these aren't simply clear mathematical expressions of the way of the world. Um, one of the things that many people have come to realize uh, that we've been talking about for a couple of years now is this notion of the fact that what we're looking at when we see, you know, this happen, when we see algorithmic machine bias happen, um, is we are seeing the effects of our translations. We are translating human language, human perspectives into machine language and machine perspectives. And so as we do that, we have to be careful about how we do that. And as we do that on a kind of meta level, we have to be careful about how we train the system. So we have to train the system in such a way that it is not only looking at what it has done in the past, but it's kind of doing differentials on what it's done in the past. It's kind of checking against itself. It's asking itself, in what situations is this not the case? But then when we talk about machine ethics, I think we have to be very, very careful um, because morality is still something that resides 100% in the human mind. We're not at the point yet where we have machine minds. And a lot of people will use that phrase casually, uh, but it's, it's terribly misleading. A machine learning algorithm isn't a mind. It's not trying to make sense of the world because it doesn't even know there is a world. It doesn't have a concept of world. It doesn't have a concept of people or things. 
uh, a machine learning algorithm is embedded in a machine that generates a mathematical structure that humans, human designers of the algorithm, can interpret as a model of something in the world or some process in the world. And so we work with the machine to get only those mathematical structures from the algorithm that will model the world in some relevant way. But there's a difference between the model and the world. And a mathematical model doesn't intrinsically have any knowledge of ethics. So to talk about machine ethics itself can be misleading unless we're very, very careful about what we mean. So we're not putting morality into machines. We're programming machines that behave in ways that, uh, that don't do ethical harm. So that's what machine ethics right now is about. And, and most of the uh, computer scientists that, that I work with and AI researchers that I work with uh, understand that, that what they're trying to do is create systems that don't do unethical things. But that doesn't mean giving a system uh, a real insight into ethics. It means building the mathematical model in a way that will produce the kind of behavior that humans will see as ethically benign or even better, you know, ethically beneficial. So this leads to a question, and that is, we divide ourselves politically largely on what we believe ought to be true, on what the future should look like, given our different moral foundations and values and so on. So the people developing this technology who are now tasked with instilling moral values into that technology, um, what if they disagree? with each other on what is right and wrong who gets to say to some extent to some extent right now silicon valley is making those decisions for us um by which i mean the greater silicon valley sort of tech companies the tech world uh and i for one am pretty happy right now that the internet was built by a bunch of burning man hippies who you know went and found someone else that ran through the dust of them because because like it or not most of these companies have actually been pretty good on the political spectrum we don't know we don't have agreement as to who's right about what. But that's, you know, a small subset of the history of the field of ethics and philosophy more broadly, right? We have hundreds of different ethical systems, some of which are just permutations of others, and some of which are wildly, wildly different from each other. And which one is the quote-unquote right one is been the question of philosophy in the West and around the world for thousands of years. Uh, I do think that I do think that, that these people uh, have the best intentions. Uh, I think in some cases they're a little diluted. You know, it's very easy to view the world as a safe place where it's okay to share all your personal information when you're a rich white kid from New Jersey. Um, so Mark Zuckerberg saying, I think there should be no privacy. Well, you know, you probably think that. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple things to say about this. So first of all, I would say that we can start with some relatively easy norms that we have, ethical norms that are already encoded in law or other social norms that already have a strong consensus. So the who gets to decide question really only emerges when we have ethical issues that we haven't reached any agreement about. And so I'll talk about those in a minute. But I mean, let's just get back to the kinds of bias that right now people are most worried about. It's already illegal for humans to hire on the basis of racial animus against a certain ethnicity. It's already illegal to deny a home loan to someone on the basis of their gender or religion 
or uh, the neighborhood they currently live in. So we've already decided this. It shouldn't be controversial that we need to make sure that our machines don't do these things either. So in a lot of these cases, we, the, the who gets to decide question doesn't come up because we've already decided. It's just a matter of making sure that our machines aren't used to make an end run around norms that we've already committed to. Of course, there are other forms of unethical behavior that aren't illegal, um, but often we have strong norms around these too. So for example, there's a general consensus, uh, at least uh, in the United States and, and other uh, um, uh, countries with sort of a similar uh, history in terms of the, the legacy of the Enlightenment and, and certain norms of equality, there's already a sort of consensus that you shouldn't treat people with less respect just because they are less wealthy or went to a less prestigious school than you did or just because they live in a working class neighborhood, right? So way back in the 19th and 18th centuries, we, we made some commitments about human dignity uh, being something that wasn't conditional uh, on your economic and social status. But people violate these norms all the time, right? Even though superficially, we still agree that it's wrong. And because of that, if we aren't careful, our machines will learn from us and do it too, right? So we'll see machines in the hospitality industry, for example, if we're not careful, learning uh, certain sorts of unacceptable conduct from humans uh, that don't obey the norms that we've more or less already agreed are appropriate. So we have to think about, about that sort of thing too. But again, there, it's not about who gets to decide. It's about making machines that reflect the values and principles that we've already decided we want to aspire to. Then there's a sort of subset, right, of questions that we still have a huge amount of disagreement about, that there's no robust consensus uh, about what's right. Uh, and, and that problem, of course, comes up when we're talking about designing machines. But I would say that 80% of the work that we urgently need to do right now has to do with encoding behavior that conforms to values that we do already agree upon. So I'm wondering, looking down the line, 300, 500 years from now, when we have true artificial intelligence, what should we be doing now to make sure that that vision of the future is a good one? There's a lot of anxiety out there about, you know, how it all is going to play out when it comes to artificial intelligence. What ought we be doing to prepare for that day? If it turns out that, you know, the way science fiction has led us to believe turns out to be true. Um, there's a woman named Jana Eggers who is the CEO of a company called Narrow Logic. And she did a talk at Startup Fest, the conference you were at this summer, uh, where she said, we, we got to stop thinking about the AI as either a demon or a god. It's neither going to kill us nor save us. We should start thinking about it using this middle ground of we gave birth to this thing. How do we want to raise it? And parents um, try to instill in their children the values they believe in. And I think to abdicate um, machine learning and AI in that way is, is kind of a cop out. So she had a really good point. I think we definitely have to raise them well. Um, <laughs> we are we are making our next 
you know, our, our next iteration, our next generation, the, the things that we create will be, you know, a part of us. They will have a part of us within them um, because we made them. They'll have our hallmarks. They'll have, you know, the, the biases that we make won't just exist within the things that they say or the ways that they correlate concepts, but in the very structure and the framework of the things that they are. Um, so we are making, in that sense, uh, our digital children. They are our offspring. And why don't we do more to raise and cultivate an understanding, to open up our understandings about other kinds of minds? Um, and if we're going to do that with machines, first and foremost, we need to do it with other humans and different types of minds and humans and different types of bodies and different types of lived experiences and humans. We need to come to understand that there are other kinds of people out in the world and we need to be more careful about how we engage them. And then perhaps we open that up to non-human animals and we open that up to non you know, animal biological systems and we open that up to non-biological systems and we kind of we can come to recognize that there is the system of potential mindedness that we can engage uh, and we have to be very careful about how we engage it. And when we're doing the creating, we have to be very careful about how we create it. Well, so I think uh, that the metaphor of children is definitely better than the metaphor of gods or demons. And I, I get very impatient uh, with the gods and demons metaphors as, as well. Uh, but I still think that uh, right now, speaking of AI as a children that we're creating is still not the best metaphor. Um, AIs aren't our children. Children deserve as much nurture, protect, and respect as we can give them. Um, and they deserve the same kinds of nurture, protection, and respect that adult human beings deserve, even more so. It would be a mistake to think of AIs in this way, right? AIs don't deserve the, the kind of moral protection, care, and respect that people do. And I, I worry very much about people who will fetishize artificial intelligence and attach moral status to it prematurely. Now, may we get to a point 300 or 500 years out where AIs are essentially digital people? I can't rule that out as a matter of principle, but we are nowhere near that. And even the hardcore AI researchers that I talk to, the vast majority of them, I'd say about 75 to 80%, don't think that we are anywhere on that trajectory. So we could speculate, sure. And again, as far as science fiction goes, I'm fine with talking about AIs that are more or less equivalent to our people and that we're creating as sort of a, a new species that we're bringing onto the, the planet. But right now, that's still science fiction. And we have work to do in the real world um, in which AIs can't uh, be appropriately regarded as, uh, as our children, as our progeny. But I, I think there's a better metaphor. I think we can think of them as works of art. I mean, mm. works of art do deserve protection and respect. And they are powerful and they can exceed the intentions of their creators and they can make social changes or bring about social changes that we didn't anticipate. Um, but we would never place a work of art uh, over the life of a human being or if we did, uh, we'd be doing something, uh, doing something wrong. Uh, the dignity uh, of, of, of a human being is still above that of any work of art. 
but that doesn't mean that works of art are just things, right? They're more than things, but they're less than people. And I, I suppose if we have to have a metaphor of where we might be heading with AIs, I think AIs might become a new form of art um, that, that we might appreciate on a similar level. There's a spark of optimism uh, in this for me in that, and I could be completely wrong about this, but I feel like um, a, lo- you know, a lot of these things are happening anyway. With pe- People are, have been doing this sort of stuff forever. And, um, and then there's the, you know, this dystopian idea that, you know, we hand everything off to the machines and then the machines, you know, are cold and, and unfeeling and they cause us to do cold, unfeeling things. But it seems like in just these few examples, um, that it's almost like, you know, we, when we offloaded these tasks to the machines, it then allowed us to, um, fix those things because it's just a matter of fixing the machine instead of dealing with the messiness of people. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. So a lot of times I have to clarify to people because I'm focusing on the risks and unethical, um, applications of certain technologies. I often have to clarify to people that I am not anti-technology. Um, in fact, um, I think we need more technology, uh, but what we need is more humane technology. Um, and I think we have to recognize that there are limitations to human processes of uh, improvement, social um, uh, 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 social uh, progress, and a, a lot of it has to do with the way that our brains are wired. And it's not very easy to rewire a human brain. Education can do a lot, um, but we unfortunately have stopped investing as much in our education system. And to the extent that education works, it works slowly and imperfectly. And I think we can take advantage of the fact that machines can serve in some ways as teachers. They can serve in some ways as checks on our own biases, on our own moral failings. Uh, Machines can be programmed in ways that hold us, if you will, to the moral commitments uh, that we say we want to honor. And that's what I would like to see, is machines that are not used to replace human morality, but machines that are used to stimulate human morality um, and and, and move it further along its path of development. And I think that's entirely possible. Keep up with Alistair Kroll at A. Kroll on Twitter. He also has a blog called solveforinteresting.com. Damian Williams on Twitter is at Wolven, W-O-L-V-E-N. And he has a website called afutureworththinkingabout.com. Shannon Valor is Shannon Valor on Twitter. That's two N's and two L's. And she has a website that is shannonvalor.net. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about today, you can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com. In addition to that, you can find 
all the back episodes, but you can also find those on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcast.net. To follow us on social media, it's at NotSmartBlog, and I am at David McRaney, and on Facebook, it's just slash you are not so smart. And if you'd like to support this show, just pitch in a little bit of money and help get the show bigger and better. Also, you get the show without any advertising. Just go to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Did you know that the reason our dreams are often nonsensical and unrepressed is because our frontal cortex goes offline during REM sleep? I bet you didn't. Did you know that studies in prenatal learning show that babies recognize the difference between previously read books and new books read to them during the last trimester of their development? Did you know that genes do not inevitably cause certain behaviors and they're not impervious to the environment? Genes only support tendencies toward a particular behavior. Where did I learn all this? Well, I learned it by going to the Great Courses Plus and watching their fascinating series on biology and human behavior, The Neurological Origins of Individuality. I love The Great Courses Plus. I get to learn about anything that interests me from brilliant, engaging professors, and I get unlimited access to thousands of them on topics like history, science, language, even hobbies like photography and chess. And you can watch these videos from any device. You can even stream the audio versions with The Great Courses Plus app. Listen to it during your commute. Now, I know you're going to love this, and as one of my listeners, you can listen to all of this for free for an entire month but you have to do this. Go to my special URL. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart.